I see people get caught up in the process and forget what they wanted to get out of the process. Sitting down before it gets crazy and saying, this is what success looks like. This is what I want out of this because it's a hectic, crazy, hard process to go through. Welcome to another episode of the Life of Climb podcast. I'm your host, Sam Reese. Joining me today is Tom Thill, CEO of Amerivet Veterinary Partners. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Well, great. I'm happy to be here. This is awesome. Thank you so much for the time. Can you start by just telling us a little bit more about Amerivet? I heard you say that last year you helped more than 2 million pets in America, which is just an incredible accomplishment. Just tell us a little bit more about what you all do. My company, Amerivet, is a veterinary consolidator that buys veterinarians uh, through a joint venture model. So we don't buy 100% of the practice. We tend to buy about 70% of the practice. So the original owner's legacy is maintained. We don't change names. We don't change employees. You know, we really want to kind of accentuate what's great about practices and help practices and hospitals that uh, need a little help with business um, with the business aspects. Our motto is six words, and it's it's really three distinct parts of our motto. It's better business, happier vets, healthier pets. And the idea there is that if we can help veterinarians do better business, you know, because we have marketing experts or accountants or anyone that's, you know, a functional expert that can help these practices, then the veterinarians can do what they love. They can be freed up to really treat pets. So they end up being happier vets. And when they're happier, we know that uh, pets get better treatment. Pets, More pets can be seen. More pets can be helped. You know, we can help these practices, recruit new veterinarians, use new tools, help with apps and things that help with the, the, the patient and client experience and, and technology to help the pets. And so that's the business that we're in. We're about five years old and we're based in San Antonio, Texas. Your personal leadership journey did not start in vet school. In fact, I, I was looking at your LinkedIn and you started as a chemist became a sales guy in the pharmaceutical industry. So just tell us a little bit about how you got from where you are, where you started in this traditional business background to where you are today. How did this journey all take place? Yeah, it's, I, I love talking about this because I, I talk to a lot of college kids about, you know, figuring out what they're really good at doing um, as early as they possibly can. I'm a big believer in, you know, your strengths are your strengths and you want to leverage them as much as you can. And so doing something that you love doing, A, but B, that leverages your strengths is going to make you the happiest and you're going to be the best at it. Um, So I can tell you that through uh, trial and error. I was not a a chemist. I was not built to be a chemist. I liked chemistry. I liked the puzzle that chemistry was and and I liked how you know, things kind of were put together. And, and, you know, that idea to me was fascinating, but it didn't align with my strengths. Um, And so I was a chemist for a very short period of time before I realized this is not for me. And if I have to sit behind this bench and do this for the rest of my life, this is not going to be, I'm not gonna be a happy guy. I actually went to my boss once and I said, hey, um, is there a part of chemistry where you get to talk to people? While he didn't truly understand why I would want to do that, uh, he said, you know, have you ever thought about sales? They talk all the time. <laughs> and so I did. I, I went into sales and, and realized quickly that, you know, while my degree was in chemistry, I needed to understand more about business. Um, you know, what were the what aspects of business might appeal to me? Um, and so I kind of promptly after undergrad went back to business school and that opened my eyes to a lot of stuff. I liked 
strategic thinking. I liked kind of acquisitions, M&A, and I liked uh, kind of marketing, sales, operations, but really services. When I got into the services industries, that's where I really kind of excelled. And I liked the idea that you know, services were hard to replicate. If you could provide the, you know, the best service and a service that people needed where they needed it um, and the way that they wanted to receive it, you had a huge competitive advantage. And so I uh, ended up becoming a COO and then a CEO of a services industry in human healthcare. In the services model, it was you provide a good service, you can charge more, you can get more customers, you know, et cetera. And in medicine, it felt like sometimes that wasn't always the case where, you know, the best medicine was always winning. And so I started looking at industries that potentially didn't have as much payer exposure. So things like dentistry and ophthalmology and, and, and veterinary and, you know, really liked the veterinary space. It was an area that was kind of ripe for consolidation because it was pretty much under consolidated, I guess, compared to some of those other service areas that I talked about. So that's really what led me into veterinary. Over these last five years, the growth rate has just been incredible. You expanded more than 130 clinics in 32 states, you know, a thousand percent growth. I mean, it's just been a wild ride for you. When you think about these last few years, what have been some of, of the trends that have helped drive some of this success? There's always an element of luck in things, but you make your own luck too, right? You prepare to be in a position to take advantage of a market that's advantageous. And so um, we have had tremendous growth. So we made our first acquisition in 2018, and we're now at 215 practices um, wow. in 32 different states. So five years later. Um, incredible. It is incredible. And you're absolutely right. There are market dynamics that help that. The low interest rate environment helped any M&A company. Uh, I mean, you can see that in the, in the news, regardless of industry. So we were able to kind of really make hay while the sun was shining there. We had great investor group. We had a great group of vets too that really wanted to see this model take off, meaning people that don't want to retire, they still want to run their business, but maybe they want to step back. Maybe they want help recruiting the next generation of vets. They don't want to just toss their keys to someone and 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 walk out the door. So I think that early work helped us take advantage of that low interest rate environment and quite frankly, a market that wasn't very consolidated. I think when we got started, you know, it was maybe about 12% consolidated. Um, so there was still just a lot of practices out there that that were advantageous targets to partner with. I think you couple that with a lot of emphasis around pets during COVID. While we didn't know that COVID would be, you know, a tailwind for us, you know, when everyone, when we were an essential service and then when everyone started spending extra time with their pets, it actually overwhelmed the system quite a bit. It put a lot of pressure on our vets and our vets always want to do what they can to help pets. And so there was some burnout from that. But I think if you if you look at the trends that we saw with interest rate environment, with pet ownership, with the uh, the amount of available targets that were out there, um, those are some things that really helped us get to where we are today so quickly. I like how you opened it up, though. You're, you're right. There's always a little luck, but you got to put yourself in position to take advantage of that luck. And you, you clearly did that. But tell us a little bit more just about what's had to change as you, for you as a leader for these last four or five years that you've really expanded. 
you know, as I look at how I didn't really have a playbook on how to start a company. You know, I had been a, a very small entrepreneur at one point in my career, but I've worked for large organizations. And what I looked at, I looked to a lot of peers. I took a lot of advice. I read a lot of books. I mean, I really tried to figure out, you know, what are the the key things that I need to build early in a company's life cycle. And I looked at what I call the golden five, right? It's your North stars of the business to help you get to where you want to go. For me, it started with the end in mind, right? I'm PE backed. We all have a sense of what having private equity money means in terms of exits and timing. And so, you know, we were looking at a five-year horizon and I thought about the world that way, you know, what did I want to be in five years? So that led me to kind of building out my golden five, right? Vision, at the top, then mission, values. I actually have behaviors, but 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 similar. You know, what are your values as a company? How are you gonna behave? And then your strategy. So this gets to how you're gonna approach the market, what's the market that you're going to approach, and finally your operating model. So how are you gonna go about attacking that segment? Those five things, vision, mission, value, strategy, and operating model were the things that I focused a lot on because to attract good talent to a small company, to attract more um, financing, to get customers to say, yes, I, you know, I want to come work with you. I want to sell my life's work to you. You've got to know where you're going. You've got to be able to paint a compelling vision for the future and, and where you want to be. And so I did. I spent a lot of early time on that and then reinforcing it through. It's one thing to say, hey, we have a set of behaviors or a set of values as a company. It's another thing to live them. And so living that vision, living that mission and those values was really important. Are you still having as much fun? Oh, yeah. Different challenges, but, but just Different. as much fun. At the end of the day, it's about pets, right? And, and it's fun. We, we have pets in the office and uh, we have screens up because our practices are spread out all over, right? So we have TVs up throughout the office and uh, they're showing pictures of the practices that we support. So at the end of the day, if you're an accountant, you can be an accountant anywhere, right? But why would you work for Merivet? We work for Merivet because you see every day these practices that you get to support. You know that they're helping, you know, pets like what you have at home. And and hopefully we provide a better environment and, and a, you know, kind of a mission that you can attach yourself to um, versus some other industry. Tell me a little bit about the company culture in Merivet. How has it really contributed to the success of the business moving forward? I started as a CEO in Vistage of another company and switched. And, and when I was building this company, we had a speaker come in who talked about behaviors rather than values. And behaviors are values in action, right? It, it's easier to understand. There's less ambiguity around what it is. I think a lot of companies have values and they're great when everybody's aligned to what they mean. For me, I, I needed to hit the ground running a little bit faster. So I put these behaviors in place and behaviors, I think, are a little bit easier to understand and they drive the culture. So the culture is really driven about how people show up to work, you know, how they interact with one another. And these behaviors that we recognize people on, you know, we, we, we put it in performance reviews are really what I think drive that and in turn drives the culture. So there's six of them. I'll comment on a few of them just because I think they're, they're fun. And, and I think that's the kind of culture we have is one that's fun, but we work hard. Um, at the end of the day, we know we're helping pets. One of our behaviors is have hustle. 
you know, we want to work hard. I like we, that. We want to have hustle, you know, and everybody knows what it's like to be on a sports team and have hustle. You know, you you run hard, you put your, you know, you, you, you want to be out of breath, that kind of thing. You want to sit Die for team. loose balls, you yeah, know, all exactly, that stuff. Right? Yeah, right. Do the extra stuff, go above and beyond, have hustle. And, you know, if everybody around you has hustle and you have hustle, it feels good. You feel like you are on a winning team. Uh, another one that I like to talk about is no jerks allowed, right? So plenty of people have things like a golden rule or a platinum rule or something like that, but everyone knows what it's like to work with a jerk. And so we simply put it as no jerks allowed. We don't want that. And we often have people at the organization calling one another out like, hey man, don't be a jerk. And they don't mean it like as an insult. They mean it as like, hey, remember the behavior, right? Yeah. And it's easy for people to identify with that. You know, the other thing we really try to instill in folks is uh, the behavior of practice, blameless problem solving, right? Love it. We are always trying to discover the root cause of something that's gone wrong in the industry or how to make something better. But it can't be about people, right? If, you, if you're constantly worrying about pointing the finger at, at the individual, then you're not really solving the, the, the root cause of the problem. So we try to, to practice blameless problem solving, focus on the solution rather than, than the individuals. And I, and, and I think there's some more behaviors we've got, but that really drives the culture. And the culture, because we work in the vet space and because we keep that top of mind, we keep pets top of mind, pets mean a lot to people, the employees and, and others. And I think you get that kind of emotional connection to what we're trying to do and we're trying to help the industry and in a way where our behaviors drive your peers in a certain way. And if, if that's what you like, this is a great place to work. We've won a number of best places to work, you know, awards in, in San Antonio. And I, and I think it's really driven from, from these kind of things. Have you ever read the four agreements? Uh -uh. Have you ever read that book? I have just, not. You, well, you just sort of recited the four agreements. It's, it's a, a good sports classic sports book. I said it's not really, but a lot of teams use it. It has four principles. Don't assume. Okay. Don't, don't take things personally. Your word is impeccable and try your hardest. Hmm. This, is, this is kind of the Tom Brady, Michael Jordan. Yeah, toolkit. interesting. It sounds like, I mean, this isn't easy work to go out there and buy 215 or partner with 215 vets. Right. You got this great platform. You have this understanding that these are people that want to continue to run their businesses. But what, what else really drives them to partner with Amerivet versus going in a different direction. And what does that look like? This is an industry that does have a fair amount of uh, competition. Um, I think there's probably no less than 40 folks out there that do what we do in varying scales. There's a handful of folks that are bigger than us and, and, and a bunch that are smaller. And I think everybody has a very different value prop. Um, and so it's really how you communicate that value prop to folks so that they truly understand what it's like to be a part of a group like Amerivet. So we have made great investments in our teams that go out. It's a very relationship-driven uh, business, the veterinary business. And so we want to have the right relationships to open up the right conversations so that we can really truly communicate the value of being a part of Amerivet. It's uh, a lot of hustle. You know, there's there's a whole lot of veterinarians out there that um, we can go and, and have these conversations with. So we want to target the right ones that fit our business model. And that's why we kind of segmented and chose the segment that we did and built the company the way we did, because it's pretty quick to identify someone that would like to be a part of a joint venture. And 
you know, the value of that is that the equity that they keep kind of continues to grow and then exits alongside us in the future. So the platform's going to exit for a much bigger multiple than they could get today. So it's got to be someone that's got the right kind of growth mindset. And we can establish that pretty quickly because some people, hey, I understand it. You know, it can be a bird in the hand and you don't want to necessarily kind of keep putting things at risk. I get it. But for those that have the right mentality around growth and want to continue to capitalize on that, our value prop aligns pretty well with them. But at the end of the day, You've got to have a good sales team. You've got to be able to go out there and communicate effectively. You've got to be able to build the right relationships and prove the value. You know, our track record is very good. We like to share that. We often share uh, references and referrals from our existing practices that we're partnered with because vets want to hear from vets, right? How did this go? Um, I hear what the business guy's telling me or the sales guy's telling me, but the end of the day, I'm not a vet. And so they want to hear from someone who's gone through it. And we've got a great network of partners that have had uh, great experiences with us that we that we do leverage. How has that changed? Was there when you first started going on this quest to bring people into the Merivet platform to where you are now that you can, I mean, just it's a machine to be able to bring in 215 acquisitions. Were there any big mistakes made early on or changes along the way that allowed you to turn that into a, you know, really self yep. kind of uh, driving engine? Every couple months. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. It's just got to be that dynamic, huh? I think we learned what makes a good uh, partner, who values this relationship, what what are the features of a practice to look for. And we continued to refine our scorecard on what makes a good partner. And I'd say we did that probably every three to six months as we learned. You know, we'd make one acquisition that looked just like another acquisition and yet one would be wildly successful and the other one would be mildly successful. And so you start to diagnose and pick apart, you know, what was it about that practice that allowed it to grow so much faster than this other one? And with that, then you learn enough things that you start looking for that. And again, every six months, you, you, you have another one that doesn't perform like you thought or one that overperforms what you thought and you think, you know, you diagnose what is going on, what are the features or, you know, markets that these practices are in that we can replicate. And so it was a lot of trial and error. It really was. What we know now about what makes a great practice versus what we did at the very beginning is very, very different. Tom, great insights. Let's take a break here. We'll be back in a few more minutes to hear more about Amerivet with Tom Phil. This episode of a Life of Climb podcast is brought to you by Vistage, the world's largest executive coaching and peer advisory organization. As a CEO or owner of a small or mid-sized business, you've got the weight of the world on you. But what if you didn't have to go it alone? What if you could journey with an experienced guide and an elite team of peers who've got your back? With that kind of support, how high could you climb? Vistage has been helping leaders reach new heights for more than 60 years. It's a proven, time-honored approach that can help you, too. Learn more about Vistage and discover more leadership resources at Vistage.com. And now, back to our episode. Welcome back. I'm sitting here with Tom Phil, CEO of Amerivet, learning about the Amerivet story. Last year, you led the, the company through this sales process to a new uh, financial partner, private equity firm. Mm -hmm. what, were, what were the big moments that led you down that path and give let's just get a, a, a feel for our listeners on what that experience was like because you had to navigate that whole thing 
Yeah. Um, look, I had great partners going through it. And so unlike, I'd say, uh, entrepreneurial founder kind of doing it themselves, I was, I did take PE money pretty early. That's who I ended up partnering with early on to really start the business, which is different. Uh, normally PE doesn't start businesses kind of from scratch like we did, but Together we did. So I had PE backing. They had been through it. I talked to a lot of folks that have sold businesses getting ready for the transaction. Things to look out for, things to watch for, things to you know, look out for for my team uh, to make sure that I could take them to the next round and make sure that they were getting what they needed out of the transaction as well as our veterinarians. Like they were first and foremost, the partners that we had. And then the investment bank, right? There's, you know, an investment bank that's serves as your your broker, right? They're your real estate agent. If, if this was a house yeah. you're selling, they're, they're your realtor, right? I mean, they really, really were helpful in helping craft the message. They knew uh, the market that was out there, other transactions that had happened, what was valuable, what wasn't valuable. And I think, you know, honestly, what made it easier, which it wasn't an easy process, but was having all these experts that could help you and guide you and give you advice. You know, for me, it was definitely long hours. You're talking to a lot of people. But if you're passionate about the business, you, you've grown the business, you built the business, it's fun to talk about the business. And so, you know, where we had come from, what we had built and what we were still trying to build, you know, you get pretty passionate about it. Yeah, you got to talk for quite a while. But uh, at the end of the day, it's it's fun to kind of talk about a successful company. So, well, it was fun to hear some of your comments about the value of Vistage, you know, the CEO peers that you got to yeah. brainstorm with, the speakers. I just really enjoyed hearing that. And then you said something that, that hit me as you talked about the four areas the CEO should focus, vision, culture, people, and delivering the numbers. Yeah. And I, and I wondered, what do you think of those four, vision, culture, people, and delivering the numbers, where do you see CEOs most often neglect or fall short of those four things? Which is the one that they forget about the most? Huh, that's a good question, because I think good CEOs keep all four of those front of mind. But what I will say is I think just the nature of business, we tend to be very focused on delivering the numbers, right? And and potentially at the expense of the other three. I think vision is probably the one people maybe forget about the most, only because hey, that's five years out and they don't often check in to say, hey, are we on this path still? You know, um, I think it takes more discipline to be checking in on your vision and making sure you're still on that path. Whereas you're hit with KPIs and numbers every day, right? And you know how you're doing and you know what you're focused on and you're focused on delivering the day and the week and the month and the quarter and the year. Whereas I think the, the vision can sometimes sit out there and if you as the CEO aren't providing, hey, this is what it looks like next year. This is what it's going to feel like when we're standing there having accomplished these things. I think the CEO has got to continue to paint that picture and create the vision for success. What does this look like? And so I think that's probably the one that maybe gets neglected more than others. I think that's good counsel, really good counsel, because when I think about what happens when you get to the point of a transaction, once you got there, I mean, you needed to have a really strong vision. It wasn't enough just to have the numbers. If people are going to partner with you now put a lot of capital at stake, they got to be excited about your vision. Is there any other advice you would give to some of the other leaders and CEOs out there listening um, when they consider 
that next step with their business selling it or partnering with a private equity firm? Yeah, I think for me, and I've, I have given counsel to other folks through Vistage or friend groups or these kind of things. And I think I see people get caught up in the process and forget what they wanted to get out of the process. So I think sitting down before it gets crazy and saying, this is what success looks like. This is what I want out of this. Do I want, you know, is it a dollar amount? Is it something that, you know, you want the company to be able to advance? Is it a new technology? Is it a access to some new market? But really to be clear with yourself on what you want out of doing a deal. I've unfortunately seen people that are like, okay, well, this is just the next step in the evolution. I, I need to do this deal. But they're not real clear with what they want out of the deal. So talk to people, talk to others, really be clear about what you think success is going to look like so that you can keep that front and center because it's a hectic, crazy, hard uh, process to go through. Great advice. I've seen people get so focused on just the process that they let the business go sideways. Mm -hmm. So they, this process elongates and now their business is worth less because they're not really focused on, you know, delivering when they need to. That's a great point. You're, you're absolutely right. That is what makes the whole process challenging is you still have a day job. <laughs> with all the complexities that now happens with this big business that you guys have built, how do you as a CEO still keep your ear to the outside. You know, great CEOs also have to make sense of the meaningful outside for their business. How do you do that? It's sometimes difficult to keep your eye outside the business, right? Because you are spending so much time inside the business. And so I do think things like Vistage, setting aside time to read industry reports or to step back and step out of kind of the day-to-day -day is something you got to schedule something you really have to try hard to do. You know, in my case, I've got a private equity sponsor. Those sponsors help look for that stuff too. So, you know, maybe it doesn't have to be all you, but you've got to set aside the time to look at that and kind of think about what the future is going to hold, right? When I talk about vision, it's vision for sure. Like, hey, the company's vision is this statement, but it's also having the vision to try to look around corners and see what could be coming. And, you know, the CEO really owns that, you know, looking at the industry data that's out there and trying to predict what could happen in a particular market and how to take advantage of that or to batten down the hatches for something that might be coming. You've got a ton of advice, but maybe one extra piece of advice that says all you other CEOs on your on your climb to be better leaders, what's a one big thing maybe you might add that wouldn't normally expect as leaders to learn that you could you could help us with? Don't be afraid to talk to others that have done it. You know, don't oh. don't have such hubris that you know it all and you can do it all. It, it I've learned so much from peers, different businesses, smaller businesses, bigger businesses. You know, don't be afraid to talk to those who have done what you are trying to do. You know, get time on their calendar, listen to their story. Um, people are pretty open. They want to help. They want to tell you where they made mistakes and, and what they could have done to fix it. And, you know, I think there's been a few kind of mentors that I've had and folks that I've asked that, um, you know, hey, can you give me some time? Can, can you help me? by telling me your story. So my final piece of advice would be talk to those who have done it. Great piece of advice. Thanks, Tom, for spending time with us today. It was fantastic to hear your story and the story about Amerivet, to hear how a chemist turned into a successful CEO. Thanks for your time today and for all your insights. Thanks, Sam. It was great. Really appreciate talking to you, and thank you very much.
Thanks for joining us for this edition of A Life of Climb podcast. Friendly reminder to please subscribe or follow the podcast to get all the latest episodes. And please visit vistage.com slash podcast for more resources to support you on your leadership journey.